If you're a parent, you know exactly what it's like to worry about your kids. You've probably never prayed a more sincere prayer than when you've prayed for your children. And honestly, we should all have that same heart for the next generation. Welcome back to the New Bridge Church Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, addresses the fear over the next generation, their faith, the problems they will face, and their pursuit of Jesus. As you listen today, lift up the next generation in prayer and ask God how you can be an influence in their life. I am glad you're here. Hey, my name's Chris. If you're new with us, welcome to New Bridge Church. So excited you decided to spend the morning with us. Um, we are in a series on fear, as you've picked up. Um, and, uh, you know, fear is something that affects our entire culture today. People are afraid of everything. There's anxiety and, and, and depression, which oftentimes is tied to fear. Um, we're afraid of you know, last week we talked about death. We're afraid of our culture and, you know, the wheels falling off. We're afraid of supply chains. We're afraid of diseases. We're afraid of everything. And over and over and over and over again in God's Word, He tells us, instructs us to fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. In the midst of the wheels coming off, in the midst of the worst things that you can possibly imagine, you don't need to be afraid because I'm here. I'm with you. Now, that can feel very prescriptive, very paternal, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Guilt-inducing, that's it. Well, but what if I'm still afraid? And I want you to know, and I've said this before in this series, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And so the, the point of this series is not to beat us up for having fear or anxiety in our lives but to help us to walk out of that, to, to do better with that as we go, to live more in the moment and in the presence of God so that we don't have to be afraid to take steps into faith. Does that make sense? Say yes. Excellent. All right, so last week, Myron covered the fear of death, which is a huge one for a lot of people. Um, and he did a great job, just kind of that eternal perspective is so important, and how this life is so short. And if you can make that switch in your, your brain and in your heart, uh, the, 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 the big things in this life are no longer big things. They're just little things, and we can navigate them with faith and on an eternal timeline. This week, I want to cover fear for the next generation. Because I hear people all the time going, oh my goodness, this generation, you know, it's just, are they going to make it? Are, 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 are they going to, are they going to have what it takes to navigate this new age that we're in? Uh, is faith going to go out in our world with this next generation? Because we see the statistics of faith just falling off a cliff in this gener in the gener each sub subsequent generation it's kind of scary isn't it especially if you're a faith filled person well i want to give us a little perspective here on the front end and then i want to give us some some really practical instruction on things that we can do to make a difference in the next generation but perspective first you know every generation that has ever existed has lamented the generation behind it I mean, my, my parents' generation lamented my generation. Oh, my goodness. What is this music they're listening to? I mean, they've got Madonna and the Culture Club. And I mean, I'll, I grew up in the 80s. And, and so, you know, I mean, there's just like, <gasps> it's, 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 it's godless. It's going nowhere. It's, you know, they're lazy. Sound familiar? Did you know in 1920, the generation that was coming up and that were kids in the 1920s were considered by their parents weak, lazy, soft. They were going to amount to nothing. They were wringing their hands and worried about what would happen to the world. Because in their generation, there was this huge, or right before their generation, this huge technological leap forward. Electricity, refrigeration, people moved off the farms. It used to be everybody was a farmer. They knew how to do stuff. They knew how to fix things and build things and take care of themselves, and they were self-sufficient. And in this very short period of time, you've got this generation coming up that doesn't know how to do anything. And it was the booming 20s or the roaring 20s, and, and there was plenty, 
and, uh, and, and it was just easy living. And they were, their parents looked at them and said, oh my goodness, they're never going to amount to anything. That was before they became the greatest generation, right? The greatest generation who fought World War II and saved the world. Every generation has done what we do now. And guys, one of the things I absolutely am just thrilled about at Newbridge Church is that we have, we span five generations. We legitimately span five generations. And uh, that, per, that produces such a richness in the intergenerational conversation and passing wisdom down, but it also provides challenges, doesn't it? Because generations, the generation thing's real, and we see the world differently in some, in some uh, distinct ways. And so we have to work hard and humble ourselves and play well together. Now, I have to say, one of the things that I enjoy recently uh, is, is I work with a bunch of millennials, and, and I'm, a, I'm Gen X, by the way. Um, proud Gen Xer. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I work with a bunch of millennials, and it's fun to watch the millennials wring their hands and go, oh, kids these days. You know, that's the, that's the joy of having to live for a little while. Now, um, generational breakdown. Let me, let me give you a generational breakdown just so we, we understand um, the generations that we're, we're dealing with. We have, the, we have a handful of the greatest generation, mostly at the upper end, the silent generation, and then the baby boomers, and then my generation, Gen X, um, and then Gen Y, which we call the millennials. And the millennials were born between 1980 and 1994. Then we have Generation Z. This would really be what we would consider the next generation at this point in time. They were born between 95 and 2009. And then we have the alphabet flips over, and we're back to the alpha generation. And the alpha generation was born between 2010 and, next, and this year, 2024. That's, now, if you talk to sociologists and people who study generations, these dates are, are soft edges, but they, they'll move. But that's generally what we're talking about. And so we're watching Gen Z and, and the alpha generation, to some extent, the, the millennial generation who've grown up in a technological leap forward, and because of that, see the world differently than the way older people see the world. And, 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 and I hear a lot of hand-wringing. Can you hear hand-wringing? I guess if you're really violent about it. I hear, hear, a lot of, hear a lot of, you know, lamenting, oh, they have ADD, they can't concentrate, they're entertainment addicted, they're you know, it's, it's hip in, this gen, in these generations to have a psychological diagnosis. By the way, it's not hip to have a psychological diagnosis. If you have one, it's, you know, there's no shame in that, but it's not hip. They're soft, they're out of shape. All the same things they said about the greatest generation before they were the greatest generation. They're lazy. But your parents said that about you. My parents' generation said that about me. So... Again, little perspective. Have you heard the, the saying, this has gone around all over the internet, so I know it's true. Um, it, hard times make strong people. Have you heard this? Strong people make good times. Good times make weak people, and weak people make hard times. Does that sound familiar? There's so much truth in that statement. It's actually been studied. And there's, there is a generational cycle to that. Four generations, 80 years, about, give or take. And they've looked at this going back across cultures thousands of years. And you can see this 80-year cycle where there are good times, make weak people, weak people make hard times, hard times make strong people, and strong people make good times. Guys, having a historical perspective, and I know I talk about history 
here in church because a historical perspective gives us the ability to take a couple steps back and understand the times that we live in. And that's so important. So all that to say, all that we're experiencing now, now, I mean, there are little differences and, you know, technological differences and all that, but what we're experiencing as a culture has happened before. This is no, nothing new. People are, you know, again, I hear people going, oh, this is as bad as it's ever been, and Jesus is coming back this year. Well, Jesus may come back this year. I don't know. Jesus said, I'll be back. He and Arnold Schwarzenegger said that. And he, and he left, and we have lived in the end times since Jesus left. And he said, you're not going to know the day or time. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to see it coming. Live every day like I'm coming back today. That's what he told us, right? And he may come back today. He may come back tomorrow. He may come back 2,000 years from now. We don't know. But what I do know, it is, it is not as bad as it has ever been. When the Babylonians were invading Jerusalem, and murdering everybody and carrying people off into exile, do you think they might have thought this is the end of the world? When Hitler was genociding the Jews across Europe and a million people died in Leningrad and they bombed London and, and, and uh, to the ground and every, you know, Europe was on fire, do you think they might have thought it's never been this bad? This is as bad as it's ever been? And how many times through history? I mean, the Civil War, when 650,000 Americans died fighting each other in their backyard. Do you think they thought, man, this is as bad as it's ever been? Yeah, just a little perspective. You know, the price of groceries is tough, but it's not as bad as it's ever been. I want to start with historical context because it helps us to understand the times. For you, those of you who hate history, well, suck it up, cupcake. We'll make it through this season as well. That's the important thing that you understand. And our youth will rise to the occasion. And the generation that's coming up now in that 80-year cycle, they're the hero generation. They will rise to the occasion in front of us. Now, another historical perspective, so hang with me. On top of that, there are ebbs and flows of spiritual fervor throughout history as well. We call them revivals, renewals, great awakenings. In the United States alone, We've had four great awakenings or four big revivals that have gone across our country and have literally changed the culture and the direction of our culture, right? So God pours out his spirit in a special way, brings lots of people to himself, so many so that it changes the tenor of the culture in that time and then has impacts for years to come. The first Great Awakening happened from 1730 to 1755. And the principles that undergird the founding of this country were preached from the pulpits in America in those years. The idea that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And all the ideas that, that laid the groundwork for America, well, they came from Scripture. They were... They were preached in the pulpits across the nation before we were ever a nation. The Second Great Awakening happened between 1790 and 1840. It laid the groundwork for the abolition of slavery. It was preached from the, the pulpits. God was doing a new thing. He was drawing lots and lots of people to himself. And this idea that slavery would be abolished it was a new idea for the entire history of the world. Every culture had had slaves abolishing slavery. What? It came out of the, great, the Second Great Awakening in the 1790s through the 1840s and set us up to fight a great war, made us willing to fight a great war to end that scourge. 
The Third Great Awakening happened between 1855 and 1930. And the fourth, I was born in the middle of, 1960 to 1980. It's where this church came from. This church was planted out of the Fourth Great Awakening, the Fourth Great Revival in America. And if you look back at what was going on in the 1960s, you had this, you had, let's see, they, they assassinated Kennedy, uh, JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King. We discovered how totally corrupt our government was. Uh, and, and, and there was this great despair, darkness, the sexual revolution, the, uh, we, we were, it was, people were pretty hopeless in the 60s. There were, some, there were, there were bits of light, but one of them was God showed up and started bringing these, these hippies and these, this next generation to himself in a profound and powerful way something that no person could have facilitated or done. And yes, there were dark and scary times in between, but God always shows up, doesn't he? I share this because I want you to know there's hope that God is going to do it again. In fact, I think he's doing it again. One of the things that's hard to, to understand or hard to know is when you're in the middle of one of those awakenings that it's happening then. You see things and you're like, well, I, you know, I don't know, but it's in retrospect that they look back and go, oh my goodness, yes, that's what happened because you see the fruit of it. I think we're, if we're not in it, we're at the threshold of another great awakening. I believe, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that's why we're here at the Capitol. God caused us to outgrow our building on Warden Run Road to get us here so that thousands of people who will be hungry for God have a place to gather and grow and find and follow God. So, got the context? All right. This is all very encouraging, isn't it? So then, what must we do? Well, uh, I want to speak to three groups of us. I want to speak to all of us first, and this is what I want to say. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is on the move in the next generation. God is on the move in the next generation. Right now, there are a bunch of kids up in the ballroom. In August, there'll be a bunch of kids across the street in a facility that we're renovating who are learning how to be the leaders of their next generation who will lead their generation into the future because it's going to require people of principle, people of faith, people of morality, people who know God to do it. And God is moving in their generation, and that is happening. Every Sunday night uh, out at our building on Warden Run Road, we have uh, high school students, middle school students who gather and are learning what it means to find and follow God, developing a personal relationship with him, who are engaged in small groups like many of you are, whose lives are being shaped and formed and developed in the things of God. Be encouraged. And that's, not, that's going on at our church. That's going on all over the world. Be encouraged. We have young adults, 18 to 25 years old, who gather every Wednesday night somewhere between 75 and 100 of them, and worship God full blast, who are learning how to live differently than the culture, who are finding and following God, and who will lead their generation into the future. And, uh, you know, I was, um, we had a group of about 20 of them go down to Atlanta over the holiday to the, the Passion Conference. The Passion Conference is a conference that meets in a stadium, 55,000 people between the ages of 18 and 25, worshiping God full blast, all in, giving him their lives, their worship, their futures. There is a passion in the generations that are coming. So be encouraged and stop wringing your hands. Now, next generation. You need to hear a few things. We believe in you. 
we're for you. You are the church. Every generation is the church. You're not the, just the next generation in the church. You are the church, and we are cheering for you. We want to invest in you. We want to set you up to win. We want to set you up to lead because your generation's going to need you in the days ahead. Now, this is one of the rubs, and this is one of the lessons that we teach over and over again here for every generation. Humility is at the, is at the, at the very center of following God. And so in humility, you guys don't know everything. You're growing up in a world that's very different, and there are things that you just accept as normal that, that might not be good. And so walk in humility. Be open to the wisdom of the gray heads and the gray beards. If you're a believer, you need to maximize your life. You need to go all in on Jesus. Again, your generation's going to need you. You need to be a sold-out, committed follower of him. And live different now so you can save your generation later. You know, one of the things, and this is not just for the next generation. This is for all of us. We've got Lent coming up, right? Right? And so we're not, a, we're not a liturgical church, and we don't formalize Lent or anything like that, but it's a great opportunity to fast from things. One of the things that is rotting the brains of every generation is our addiction to technology and entertainment. It literally is reducing our ability to focus and concentrate and be intelligent and all those things. And so uh, I'm not... I don't want to beat anybody up for using technology. That's not my, and I'm not suggesting we eliminate it from our lives because we can. But one thing that we can do is we can make concentrated efforts to make a break and give our brains time to recover. And Lent would be a great time to do that. So I want to challenge all of us to uh, fast from entertainment, fast from, from digitally-based entertainment over, over the 40 days of Lent. And imagine what you could do with that time. I mean, you could learn to read. <laughs> you, could, you, you could hang out with your friends and, like, have a conversation instead of texting to them as they're sitting next to you. I've watched, I've watched adults do this, guys. This is not just the next generation, but you're, like, you're texting across the table. Stop it! Put down the phone and climb to the top of your class. Spend time with Jesus. You could get a job. <laughs> Learn how to live a disciplined life. This is for all of us. Parents, I want to speak to parents for a minute. It's a terrifying time to raise children not just because of the influences they have access to, but the influences that are pursuing them to wreck them. What technology is doing, COVID, I mean, this, this whole phenomenon of COVID kids coming up now, and suicide is the second leading cause of death for kids 10 to 14 years old. It's scary. Those are real things. And so I want to speak to parents, but I think what I am about to say really applies to all of us, every single one of us. But I'm going to couch it in a question for parents. How do we raise kids? How do we raise kids who can overcome the world and not be overcome by it? Because that's really the question. And I want to start with this foundational idea. Parents... As your kids grow up, the truth is you don't have control over them. We want control over them. When they're little, we have control over them, right? We can put them, in, uh, put them behind the baby gate, and we can put 
outlet covers on the outlet so they don't electrocute themselves, and we can say, you can go here and you can go there and you're grounded. But as they grow, what do kids naturally want? Independence, right. They grow towards independence. And we want to control them. You know, some of the most messed up kids I know are kids who grow up in religious environments where it's all about control because they will throw off that control as soon as they're free to do so. And so what we have to do, parents and everyone else, is we must control and keep safe when they're young, but as they grow, give them the appropriate amount of independence and grow in our influence, because that's ultimately what we have. When they're adults, when they're young adults, we have more influence than we do control. Yes? Yeah, it's true. All right, so keep that in mind. And fight your urge for control. In Proverbs 21, King Solomon's writing to his son Rehoboam, who's going to inherit the kingdom, does a crappy job with it, by the way, but that's another story. And he's giving him some wisdom. And he, say, and he says, listen, Rehoboam, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. What he's saying is, look, you may or may not win that battle. That's out of your control. But what you can do is you can prepare your horses for battle. Parents, your kid may or may not turn out the way you want them to. That's out of your control. But what you can do ultimately is prepare them for life. That's your job. There's a lot of parents who walk around with a lot of guilt because their kids went down a road that they didn't want them to go down, and they blame themselves. If you've prepared your child, you don't have to beat yourself up. We prepare them. So how do we raise kids who can overcome the world and not be overcome by it? All right, four things real quick. I could have done 40. I'm doing four because you won't remember 40. First thing is this. Put your spouse before your kids. If you are married, you put your spouse before your kids. If you're not married, I'll talk to you in a minute. If you're married with kids, the single greatest advantage that you can give your children is a strong, healthy, vibrant, passionate, committed marriage. Guys, this flies in the face of our culture. This is totally countercultural. Because what happens? We fall in love, we get the butterflies in our well, stomach or heart, wherever you get your butterflies. You get your butterflies, you're like, oh, they're so dreamy and great. And then you spend a bunch of money to get married, which is easy if your parents are paying for it. But anyway, you, you get married, and then you know, things are going along, and then the kids come along. And all the attention turns from one another to the kids. It's just, you know, I mean, we love our kids. Like, it's wired into us, right? And so we want, to, we want them to have the best of everything. We want them to have every advantage. It's the worst thing you can do for your kids. It's easy to fall in love. It's easy to get married once you get through all the planning and everything. It's hard to stay in love. It's hard to stay focused on one another. Now, people who have been married for a long time will tell you that the good part of the marriage is on the other part of the hard part of the marriage. It's why God has us make a lifelong covenant and commitment to one another, because he knows we're going to go through a, part, a, a patch where we're going to die to ourselves, and we're going to learn how to submit to one another and sacrifice for one another. And once you get through that, you got something special. And it's in the context of that kind of relationship that kids have the security and safety they need to thrive emotionally, mentally, and every other way. 
It is the most powerful. Every study that has been done on this, kids who come from intact, loving families have advantages in careers, in later relationships, in, in uh, school, every way. I mean, like, yeah, incarceration, they're, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the opposite. It's profound. It's profound. Now, if you're a single parent, or you've kind of been down, the, I've had some kids, we got divorced, got remarried, or you're, you're doing it on your own, it'd be really easy to feel beat up at this point in the sermon. And that's not my heart at all. And in fact, what I want to tell you is, if you're pursuing God, God can redeem everything. Okay, you're in the right place, you're on the right track, you're doing the right thing. And if you invite God into the mix of it, He will come into the mix of that, and He will restore the years the locusts have stolen. And he, he will bless your kids and he will parent. Your, he'll join you in the midst of that. All right, so please don't hear me saying it's all over for you and your damaged goods and all of that. I'm, I, that's not what I'm saying. Do your best from here. You know, when... when Everything switches to the kids. And, and really, if you look at the family as, a, as an atom, at the nucleus of the family, you have, you have the parents. And the kids are in the outer orbit. But if we take the kids and put them at the center, everything's off balance. Atoms don't work well that way. They disintegrate. And that's what we've done with kids in our culture. And we end up with broken marriages and weak and narcissistic children. Giving your kid everything they want, making sure they have every advantage, putting them at the center of your universe actually hurts your kids. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do things for our kids and we don't you know, allow them to have experiences, but what they need more than any of that and what will set them up to win more than any of that is a mom and a dad who genuinely love and are committed to one another because there's a security thing that lets them go, <gasps> and now they can, they can just focus on growing up. And they, that's, and they need a mom and dad who are passionate about one, one another. Like, they'll, they'll go, ooh, mom and dad are hugging or kissing on the couch or whatever, but they're like, ooh. And sooner or later, they're, they're in the pile, right? You know, I mean, they, they want to be a part of that. They want to be near that. Because that's how God designed it. That's what he, that's how, what he designed. The, the incubator for healthy human beings is that relationship. In Ephesians 5, 21, the Apostle Paul writes this beautiful passage. It's a, he paints a picture of what this looks like. He says, submit to one another. And then he, he, he teases out what that submission looks like, but he paints this picture of this incredibly committed, incredibly beautiful uh, marriage. And he tells husbands, you know, love and cherish your wives. It's, it's at the core of the, 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 the feminine Psyche is, is, is just this, this, this desire to be loved and cherished. And he says, lay down your life for her if that's what it takes. Like Jesus laid down his life for you. And then he, he, he says, wives, honor and respect your husbands because that's at the core of the, the masculine heart, generally speaking, is this need to be honored and respected. That's how you submit and serve him. And this is how he submits and serves you, and if you do, you're out loving one another, and you're, you're speaking one another's languages, and you're going to be in love, and you're gonna, it's going to take time to learn how to do this just from personal experience, but it, it, it does happen. And, and what happens is that all of a sudden, you've got this environment where the kids can come alive. God-designed marriage is the ultimate incubator for human beings. In Malachi 2, the prophet Malachi is writing to Israel, and they're in, they've walked away from God in so many areas, but one of the ways they walked away from God 
is that they began to, uh, they just kind of began to ignore their marriage covenants and vows. And adultery was rampant, and divorce was everywhere. And this is what he says in Malachi 2, 13. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because no longer, he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. In other words, you're all upset because God's not listening to you right now. And you ask why. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. This goes both genders, so just, you have been unfaithful to her, though she is the partner and the wife of your marriage covenant. So, and then in verse 15, he says this, has not the one God made you? Yes. You belong to him in body and spirit? Yes. And what does the one God seek? I want you, if you have your Bibles open, to underline this next two words. Godly offspring. God made the marriage covenant, the, the relationship between that nu- the relationship between husband and wife is the nucleus of the cellular, well, we call it the cellular family for a reason, I guess, right? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Now, does this mean you can't have godly offspring? If you've been through a rough patch in your life, if you've got, if you've been divorced, or you know your story is different than that, no, it does not mean that. It does not mean that. Does it mean you have set your kids up for the best possible chance if you do it God's way? Absolutely, it does mean that. It does mean that. Now, sometimes this passage is translated, God hate, or it, it, at the end it says, God hates divorce. And God does hate divorce. God hates the pain that it causes the people who are involved. He hates the destruction it does in the hearts and minds of the kids who are involved. It is incredibly destructive, and God, God hates it. But you need to hear me if you are divorced. God does not hate divorced people. Okay? He hates divorce because of what it does. He does not hate you. He loves you very much. And as I said earlier, he's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And if you will lean into him now and invite him into your life and into your world and into your family, he can redeem. For those still fighting, though, to make their marriage work, and I know there are people in our church who are fighting right now. Your marriage is hanging by a thread. Fight. Fight. The good part is on the other side of the hard part. And if you will surrender to God first and then submit to one another and fight your way through and learn how to die to yourself and live for God and live for the other person, the relationship you're looking for is found there with them. They can change because God changes people. And guys, just priorities are everything. God first, partner second, kids fifth. No, kids third. My family is the dog third and then the kids, but you know how that goes. So. That's a joke if you're, if you're visiting with us. <clears throat> Number two, don't always ride to the rescue. Let your kids suffer. <clears throat> Let your kids work their way through it. We want to bail our kids out of every situation. We want to run in and fix it. And if somebody did our kid wrong, well, they're going to hear from me. And so if little Susie gets... Little Susie gets a C in the second grade while mom's in the principal's office going, that teacher is no good. Stop it. 
Nobody is ever going to ask to see your second grade transcript. All right? And Susie's learning a lesson. We don't respect authority. We take out authority who doesn't do what we want to do. What's a more important lesson? Learning to respect authority, even if it's not the best authority. How many, how many parents today are either physically or verbally assaulting their coaches because their kid's not getting enough playtime or he's not coaching right or whatever and undermining, undermining the authority of the coach in the minds of their kids. You're teaching a very specific lesson and it's not a good one. And the reality is at the end of the day, the more important lesson is not the more playtime or not the better grade or not that they're treated fairly because life isn't fair, folks, but they learn to be gritty, they learn to advocate for themselves, and they learn to respect authority. In Romans 13, 1 through 2, it says, let everyone, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians who are being persecuted by the Roman government, and this is about the Roman government. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Will your kids be wronged along the way? I was. Your kids probably, you were. Your kids will be. Is it the end of the world? No, actually, it's an opportunity to learn some things along the way. Guys, we are to respect the authorities who are over us, even if they're not the best, even if we disagree with them. I disagree a lot. Think of Daniel. We talked about him a few weeks ago. But if you let them walk through it, they will learn how to respect authority in their life. They will learn to trust God in the moment. They will learn that this is just a small part of their overall story, and they'll look back and go, and yeah, and that's where I learned to toughen up a little bit. That's where I learned to say, yes, sir, or I learned to advocate for myself because it was wrong. What's more important, the A or the life lesson? Not the A, just in case you were wondering. It's not the A, it's the life lesson. If you want your kids to obey God later in life, teach them to respect authority now because here's where the rubber meets the road. One day, God is gonna ask them to do something that they don't want to do, that feels unfair to them in the mo moment, that they don't quite understand, and if they don't respect authority that they can see, they won't respect the authority that they can't. And we've taught them, oh, it's all about the A or the playtime or whatever it is. It's all about them. When we continually run to the rescue, we keep them from developing the grit they need to live a full life. So cut it out. the greatest gift you can give them is letting them learn to respect authority. Number three, prioritize God over performance. Prioritize God over performance. Guys, I have seen this over and over and over again where lesser things are prioritized over their relationship with God. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 25. He said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Another translation says, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And yet we prioritize lesser things. What good is it for your kid to be at the top of their class and lose their way following Jesus? What good is it for them to have a high-power career, you know, be a sports star on their, on their travel team and lose their soul? 
Now, I'm not against high grades. I'm not. And I'm not against sports. I'm not. I'm not against having a high-powered career. I'm not. Those are secondary concerns, are they not? What good is, is any of that if they're spiritually bankrupt? You know, I remember <clears throat> coming up, there was, there was a kid who, who was a high performer in school. His grades dropped. He was involved in sports and athletics and extracurriculars, all kinds of extracurriculars, and involved in youth group. And the parents said, well, your grades dropped. You're going to have to stop going to youth group. What messages does that send? We prioritize lesser things. You know, the, and we teach lessons without even knowing it along the way. You know, your kid as an underachiever who loves God and has character will go so much further than your high type A driven child who doesn't have the character of God in his life or hers. Number four intentionalized relationship with the next generation. This is for parents and people who are grandparents and people who don't have kids yet. If you're an older person, intentionalize relationship with the next generation, whatever that next generation is. For parents, this is your kids. This is where influence comes in. Influence comes from relationship and connection. And if you're not intentionally in your kids' lives, you will lose control and you will have no influence. For those of us that don't have kids, you have the opportunity to influence the future of our world if you will be present in the lives of the next generation. Don't check out and go, well, I'm retired now and I'm going to watch television and eat. I mean, eat for sure, because you need to live, but. Guys, we have opportunities in the next three generations for you to serve and hang out and, and build relationship. And they're dying for it. They're open to it. They want you in their lives. Parents, and even if you're not, holding and praying over babies, building relationships with kids. I got this dream that, that people would start in the lives of kids in, in kindergarten and grow up with them through college and, and young adulthood. Like the same person or the same people in their lives that they know, love them, that care about them, that want God's best for them. Be in their world, be interested in who they are, what they are, and what God has for them moving forward. Don't make excuses to not get involved. Guys, there is so much hope for the future. I know people are, are fearful. They're, they're scared. They're wringing their hands. Everything seems a mess. God is still on the throne. The patterns of history will repeat until Jesus comes back. And we have such an opportunity in this community, in this church, to make all the difference in the world if we're willing to lean in and be a part of their lives, to love them and cheer them on, not tear them down. Because I'm telling you, revival is coming. And it's our job to build bridges. It's our job to build them up. It's our job to believe in them. It's our job to pass the torch. I want to give you a next step here at the end, just a simple thing to do. On your Connect card, there's a place to sign up and serving with the next generation and sign up to work with the little kids, the middle kids, or the young adults. Maybe uh, you have a great marriage and you've made it to the other side of the hard part and you have something to share with those who are in the hard part. Maybe you could mentor some couples or a couple. But guys, let's not sit back and just be content to wring our hands and complain.
But let's lean in and be a part of what God is doing and what he is about to do because there is such hope, and it's sitting in the Capitol Theater. Let's do this. I have one more thing I want to I share, and that's this. There are many of us sitting here going, I've made a mess. I've, I've, I've made some bad decisions. I've tried to do it my way. I've made a mess, and you feel, you feel shame. You feel guilt. And God doesn't want you carrying that shame and guilt. And the answer is not to walk away feeling shame and guilt. The answer is to walk away forgiven and empowered to live different from here. And if that's you, I want you to know that God loves you. He made you. He sees the mess. He loves you anyway. And that Jesus came and died on the cross because the, the payment for our sin was death. He died on the cross so that you don't have to make that payment. But he will wash away the shame. He will wash away the guilt, and he will give you a brand new start. He will give your kids a brand new start. He, he is able. But you have to place your faith in him. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that. That's where this starts. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. If you've never asked God to be God of your life, if you've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior, would you do it right now? And it starts, starts with a, a, a prayer. It goes something like this. You can make, just use your own words, but say something like this. In the quiet of your thoughts, just say, God, I have made a mess. God, I have sinned. God, I have not done it your way. I've done it my way. And I need forgiveness. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for my forgiveness. Would you forgive me now? Would you come and live in my heart and help me to live different from this day forward? Would you adopt me into your family? God, would you pursue my children? Lord, would you change it all now in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face to face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.